The legend says that Desiderata, one of the most poignant, powerful poems about living a human life, was found in a church in Baltimore in the 17th century. But really, these timeless words were penned in 1920. And here we are over a hundred years later, and we still need every truth in this poem. It ends with these words. With all its sham, drudgery, and broken dreams, it is still a beautiful world. Be cheerful. Strive to be happy. Welcome to the Vanessa Londino Podcast. I'm your host, Vanessa Londino. This is episode 25, and I want to thank each and every one of you who have been listening and sharing and interacting and writing me and commenting on the podcast. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. This episode number is kind of an important one in the podcasting world. Once you get to episode 25, you know if you're going to stick around or not. And guys, the listenership is up into the thousands. I remember when I thought 100 was just a miracle. And then I was like, my gosh, 250 people listen to my podcast. Wow, a thousand. Guys, we're way up there now. We're well into the thousands. And it's because of you. It is because you tune in, you listen, you take these words to heart, they resonate with you, you tell me about it, and I couldn't thank you enough. So welcome to episode 25, and we're going to keep going. I'm learning from you, and I hope that this podcast serves you in some way. So the title today is 10 Unavoidable Truths, and today we're going to look at truths one through five. And why did I choose this topic? Well, I've been in clinical practice for about a decade. And I've been on a journey of my own healing through therapy, through 12-step groups, monastic retreats into silence, lots of ways of healing, journaling, all of that. It's been two decades for me, over two decades. And these are the most commonly fought truths in me, in you, from what I've heard in therapy sessions. And we fight them because they cause us something called cognitive dissonance. So let's talk about that for a minute. Cognitive dissonance is the uncomfortable feeling that we get when we don't want to accept what is before us because it challenges our belief systems. It's challenging our narrative. It could be challenging previously held assumptions, so we fight it. And the uncomfortable feeling we have is called cognitive dissonance. So we can't see it. We won't see it. We literally will not see the truth in front of us because the feeling that we get, if this happens to be true, is so uncomfortable And we fight it so strongly that we'll deny all reality. So I was thinking about cognitive dissonance, and I really don't know if this is the best example. But what came to my mind is imagine if the people of the Emerald City learned that the Wizard of Oz was just a man behind a curtain. I mean, Dorothy and the Tin Man and the Lion and the Scarecrow leave Oz, but they all stay in denial. I mean, they sort of all, well, I don't even know if they're in denial. I think they all stay in the lie. I mean, all those good, well-meaning people who are stomping around the Emerald City never learned that the Wizard of Oz is just a man behind a curtain. But imagine if they did. They would struggle to believe it, right? They've come to believe that the all-powerful, all-knowing Wizard of Oz, this, you know, transparent hologram of a face against a wall is the great and powerful Wizard of Oz. What if they learned that it's just a little dude behind a curtain, right? They would fight reality. They would say things to themselves and they would say it to one another. This can't be. It can't be. And that is the expression of cognitive dissonance. It can't be because we can't hold the reality of the truth. It's too far away. It's too far separated from what we previously thought. So what we're seeing could be plain as day is dissonant 
as opposed to resonant. Okay, resonant means, oh, okay, that resonates with me. It's harmonious. We get it. Dissonant means it's, it's in discord, okay, with what we've come to believe. So we fight the truth sometimes. We cannot accept it. And here's the danger, okay? The danger is that we could build our lives on ideas that are simply not true. And that's why our series Waking Up that we did for the last five weeks before this is so important because waking up is what allows us to come out of denial where we need things to be as we see them. We don't want to see anything else. Remember that denial is the conscious or unconscious choice to not see, okay? But when we are waking up, we're willing to step into reality, and reality is where we're just simply seeking and accepting what is true. And when we wake up, we've learned to tolerate cognitive dissonance. We don't have to rewrite the narrative constantly so that we don't feel bad, because so much of that constant drive to rewrite a narrative, to change the reality of what is right in front of us into something that we can tolerate, something that we can digest is cognitive dissonance. We just don't want to feel it. And it is an uncomfortable feeling for sure. But when we get past it, when we wake up, the truth is so much more important than feeling safe and secure in our little cocoons of thought. And we might be riddled with untruths in those cocoons. So we need to address the idealist in us. And this is kind of sacred ground because I love the idealist in me and I love the idealist in you. It's the child inside of us that just wants to love and be loved, right? It's the child inside of us that just wants a world that is safe, a world that's secure, a world where we could trust our parents, our families, our teachers. And as we get older, we want to be able to trust authority figures like professors and bosses, political leaders, church leaders, whatever the authorities are in our lives, man, we want to trust them. We want to believe that they're going to do the right thing. We want to believe that they've got our back. And we can and we can't. We can trust it and we can't. And that reality, that tension is where wisdom is born. That is where we mature. That's where children become adults. And we have to get past our cognitive dissonance and value truth over a perceived feeling of safety. We've got to grow strong enough to step into the discomfort of unavoidable realities and grow into people who can handle life. So I've split this into two episodes. We'll cover five unavoidable truths this week and then five next week. All right, let's dive in. Unavoidable truth number one, not everything can be healed. Okay? Not everything can be healed. Now, here's the reality. We've all been wounded. And we live past our wounds in a number of ways, okay? We live past our wounds in survival. We live past our wounds in ongoing grief. We live past our wounds in integration. And we live past our wounds in healing. And I'm going to break those down. Okay, survival. What is survival? Survival means that the wound is not healed, but we've developed coping mechanisms or coping strategies to live with it. Okay, that is the essence of being in survival mode. It's sort of like developing a limp after an injury to the leg. Okay, maybe the wound on the leg is not addressed. It's not healed. It's not getting treatment. But we've sort of figured out a way to live with it. Maybe we stop using stairs. Okay, we've stopped running. And we've just learned to live with a limp. Now, if we're in survival mode in our lives, we're literally living life with a limp. And in emotional trauma, that might mean 
avoiding intimacy if we've suffered abuse. It could mean developing codependent or controlling caretaking cycles in relationship if we lived with emotionally unavailable parents. Okay, that's a coping mechanism for the pain of an emotionally unavailable parent. It could mean breaking out into rages when we feel threatened if we weren't adequately protected as children. So if we have sort of an inborn sense of threat or danger, people who should be safe or dangerous, we may break out into rages or we may shut down and pull into our shell like a turtle. Okay, that's all survival. Survival could mean never talking about our feelings if we grew up in emotionally stifling environments. We just don't deal with feelings. We live life out of the mind, not the heart. So when we're in survival mode, we're highly reactive. We're not breathing consciously. We're not thinking. We're not responding to situations. We are moving quickly to self-protect with little to no thought. Okay, that's at the very essence of survival. Survival is reactive. Survival is self-protective. So we're not concerned about connecting with people. We're not working things through. We're not talking things through. We're only concerned with avoiding future pain for ourselves. So we'll do anything we have to to do that. We'll shut down, we'll pull away, we'll lie, we'll people please, we'll rage, we'll threaten, whatever we have to do to self-protect, we do that in survival mode. And the wounds, when we're in survival mode, the wounds are centralized in our lives. What do I mean by that? I mean this, everything orients around the wound, but in an unconscious way. So what we have, what we call in trauma work, we have what's called a window of tolerance, okay? And everything that we can tolerate in day-to-day life falls inside that window. And if anything falls outside that window of tolerance, we react really strongly, okay? So it means that our worlds need to be in a very tidy sense of control. If we're in survival mode, we have to control everything in our world. And when anything, literally anything appears on our radar that threatens the control we think we have, we react. Okay, we can't roll with the punches. We can't change the narrative. We can't really let things roll off our backs. We don't adjust well if it's not in our control. We can't allow people in in a trusting way. No, 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 that's too dangerous. People have let us down. This is survival. Okay, we also may survive by underreacting. And this is sort of the turtle pulling itself into the shell narrative. We won't rock the boat. We can't rock the boat. So we just shut down and we take a very passive backseat position to the challenges in our lives instead of having the strength to take it on. Both are survival mechanisms. One is fight. Okay, that's when we're taking charge, taking control. And the other is freeze. And that's when we're pulling in like the turtle pulling into a shell. In survival, denial rules. Everything is about denying the pain. Pain is to be avoided, medicated, just denied. And this is the flight mechanism. We're fleeing reality. We don't want to face reality. We don't want to feel the pain. It's too painful. So in order to not feel that pain, we develop compulsive behaviors that keep us from the pain. Could be working nonstop, drinking always fixing things. You know, people have constant projects. This is a very productive way to avoid pain. I don't have it. Uh, That's not my coping mechanism. But some people do that, right? They're tinkering constantly. I'm going to fix this. I'm going to fix that. The list of things to do never ends. Some of us fantasize to avoid pain. We sort of fantasize about a reality where people don't hurt us. Some of us use pornography, to avoid pain. We may eat to avoid pain. We may engage in religious activity to avoid pain. And believe it or not, nothing functions better to avoid pain than religion. Man, religion is such an effective drug. 
if used in that way. But we'll do anything so we don't have to feel the pain. Okay, this is survival. Now let's talk about ongoing grief. This is another way that we live past our wounds. Maybe we're not in denial. Okay, we're living in the pain. Now we're grieving. We're with the pain. We're not denying what happened or the pain we felt because of it. And we're allowing ourselves to be immersed in it. When we're in a stage of ongoing grief, we are learning to function in pain. So we've accepted the pain as part of our lives. Okay, now the wounds in this stage here of ongoing grief, they are centralized in our life and everything orients around them, but this time in a conscious way. Conscious because the pain is now felt, it's disgust. Now this may be someone who could just never get over a divorce or a death or a loss. So the pain, it just doesn't diminish. Okay, so we might be grieving and maybe our grief is doing what grief does, which is slowly moving us through the loss or the trauma. This is healthy, it's painful, but it's healthy grief. Or on the flip side, we might redefine our entire lives by the trauma we've suffered or the loss we've endured. And we take up the mantle of victimhood as a way of being. And I'm going to say a little bit more about victimhood because victimhood, it gets a bad rap and it's really not healthy. It's not totally functional for us, but it does protect us. And I'll say more about that later. Now, why is this dangerous? Well, because this is not now a process. Grief is not a process. It's an identity. We have moved to a place of identifying ourselves by our wounds, not our true selves, which are resilient and wise and strong, but by the wound. Okay, this is now who I am. Now, we may be highly reactive in ongoing grief. We may be angry. We could be depressed. We might feel unmotivated. And slowly, sadly, this is very tragic, but sometimes there's a change in personality, And we might go from being very joyful, free, youthful, innocent, young, to being a very different human being. We might become negative, untrusting, hardened. And typically when we see those personality changes as a result of a loss, what I'm typically looking at is a sign of a stalled grief process. And the journey of the wound has stopped in the place of severe pain. Okay? Now let's move on to integration. Some wounds that we work with, we work on, we get help, we see a therapist, we talk to leaders or mentors or trusted people that really have a positive effect on us. They can sit with us in that pain. They can empathize. They can grieve with us. We get to integration. And what is integration? Integration means we've grieved. We've owned the loss. And we've learned that life can go on from here. It's going to be different. I'm different. My, my worldview is different. But I can go on. And we start to make meaning. I love talking about this. What does that mean? Here's what it means. It means we start seeing how this change, this event that we've gone through, it's a trauma, it's a loss, maybe from childhood, from adulthood, whatever it is, but it's brought about something in us that has contributed to who we are. Now, that's an important word. It has contributed to who we are, not detracted from who we are. Because when we go through trauma and loss, at first, it looks like it's detracting. We've lost something we value. That's why the grief process is so important, right? Something has been taken away. We've been robbed of something. It has been detracted from who we are, okay? And this is the essential difference. When we are making meaning, instead of seeing it as a detraction only, we start to see it as a contribution, 
So remember that before we reach integration, we will always see hardship, loss, trauma, something that was taken from us. But when we begin to make meaning, we're starting to see how we have gained something. Now, maybe we would rather have what we lost than what we gained. That's okay. But we can still see what we're gaining. We can see the new layers of us that we've developed when we're integrating a loss, when we're making meaning. We're taking notice of what we've gained, how we've grown, and we're valuing that. We don't just shrug our shoulders and go, yeah, great, I'm older, I'm wiser, what's the difference? No, we're actually valuing that as an addition to our overall person. Now, when we're focused on the loss and the wound, we only value what we've lost or what we've suffered. Okay, but when we're making meaning, we're beginning to value what we've acquired, whether that's wisdom, experience, compassion, it could be empathy, knowledge, whatever it is. We're not just valuing what we've lost. We're valuing what we've gained. And in integration, we begin to find purpose. And what does that mean? It just means that we're putting our gains to use. Those gains that we found in making meaning, now we're putting them to use. We are ready to use a transformed self in the world for the better. And we're seeing how, yes, hurt people hurt people. That's true. But healed people heal people. And that's now us. And this is the greatest use of our trauma or loss is now finding purpose with it. So we've grieved. We've made meaning. We've gained layers to us we didn't have before. And now we're finding purpose. Eventually, we have gratitude for what transpired because it made us who we are. I knew I was growing. When someone asked me, Vanessa, if you could, would you change anything about your childhood? And I said no. Because for many years, I would have said yes. I would have wanted some idealized version of childhood where none of the wounds I suffered took place at all. But I got to that point, and it was so genuine. It was so real and authentic where I said, nope, I wouldn't change a thing because I love who I am now. So that's integration. Okay? Now, remember that the unavoidable truth we're talking about here is not all wounds get here. So some wounds do, some wounds don't. We'll say more about that in a minute. But we might experience an integration or restoration of joy. So we hold the loss or trauma within us, but it's no longer in the form of excruciating pain that stops our joy. We can allow joy again. We go on. We hold that loss gently. It's part of us now, but we're realizing joy again and we're acquiring wisdom. Now let's talk about healing. Healing is the eradication of pain and symptoms. That's what it means to be healed. It means there's nothing of what hurt you left. And in healing, we have a restoration of like childlike joy. Okay, this isn't just allowing joy anymore into our lives. This is like it's bubbling up from within us. It's like we're children again. We have our freedom restored to us, our authenticity, our spontaneity. It's the opposite of being jaded. It's the opposite of becoming cynical. We can trust again. And we're unburdened by what happened to us in any way. In fact, we see it as a blessing because it taught us about life and it taught us about love and it taught us who we are. So what's the unavoidable truth? Some things are going to live in a place of survival. Some parts of us are going to live in a place of ongoing grief. Some integration and some wounds will be healed. And I'd say a good goal for us is to work with our wounds as much as we can using all the tools that we have at our disposal in this life. Work with our wounds into a place of integration or healing when possible, but we have to remember not everything can be healed. Okay, unavoidable truth number two. No matter how much love we give, 
no matter how healthy we are, some people will not respond to it. I am sorry, but you know it's true, and I know it's true. We cannot believe that because we have done our work, all of our relationships will improve. They will not. Your relationship with yourself will improve, and some of your relationships will improve. That is true. But not all of them. We might still have conflict. We're going to still feel alone. We will still feel distant and disconnected in our lives. And this can be extremely frustrating. It's like spitting into the wind. Because our best efforts don't always bring about the relationships we want. Why? Because people love at the level of their consciousness, not yours. I'm going to say that again. People love at their own level of work, their own level of consciousness, not yours. Just because you grew doesn't mean they did. And it doesn't mean they want to. It just means you did. And it's frustrating because we might think to ourselves, I'm doing everything right. I mean, I had a great conversation. I'm communicating more effectively. I'm communicating more accurately about my feelings. I'm sharing my life from a place of generosity. And I'm using the tools I'm learning in therapy or wherever I'm learning them, tools that are directly connected to growth. I've changed. I've grown. I'm ready for intimacy. Respect, honesty, trust, all of those beautiful building blocks of satisfying relationships. But people can only respond to us out of their own level of consciousness, not ours. And what is consciousness? Let's just stop here for a sec. Consciousness means self-awareness, acceptance of reality, and the self in reality. It's being aware of yourself in real time. It's knowing yourself. And we can't yank people out of denial. That doesn't work. If they're ready to come out, they will take a step out. But if they're not, they won't. So we have to have a grief process to accept this very difficult truth that no matter how much love we give, people may not come around. And we might have to grieve that we've wasted time and effort on certain people who were never going to come around. And so we need boundaries. We may not want those boundaries, but we need them because that is an unavoidable truth. Unavoidable truth number three, your self-knowledge is your responsibility. Okay, your self-knowledge is your responsibility. Other people cannot know you if you don't let them know you. And in order for you to let them know you with intention and with accuracy, you have to know yourself. You have to know what you feel. You have to start connecting your feelings with needs, right? Fulfilled needs usually, generally, produce very pleasant emotions. And unmet needs generally produce very unpleasant emotions. So it's up to us to ask ourselves, gee, what am I feeling? What need is not being met? And how do I express that while containing within myself, you know, self-regulation? I don't want to hurt this relationship, but I need to be honest and open about what I feel, what needs are being met, what needs are not being met. Okay, we have to let people know who we are, where we are, and what we're feeling. We need to be able to change over the course of our lives. Why? Because that's also an unavoidable truth. People change. We grow. Our perspective changes. Our desires change. And when those things change, our boundaries change. And it's up to us to see that and communicate those changes. So we inform others, but we do not need to apologize for changes. People change and we change. That's not something we need to apologize for. So we, we need to let people know. We might say, you know, I used to be okay with this, but I'm really not anymore. Or I used to live for work, but I'm different now. Or I've stopped drinking. I can't go to that bar with you. 
where I'm not going to work overtime like I used to. I'm prioritizing my family more now than I did before. Or I've accepted this behavior up until now, but I can't accept this anymore. This is not okay. Okay, we change. And we have to get over the shame and the anger that we feel that we actually have to articulate to other people what we need. Some of us are very ashamed of our needs. We think it means we're weak to say, I need such and such. And then some of us get very angry that other people don't know what we need. But my friends, it's not their responsibility to know. It's yours. It's mine. It's our responsibility to know ourselves and communicate. It's others' responsibility to respond in a loving or respectful way. But we need to stop expecting people to read our minds. We need to stop expecting people to adjust to our inner world when we are not making that known. It's not fair. Everyone's trying to handle their own load. And yeah, does intimacy mean we have intimate knowledge of one another? Of course. And sometimes that means we anticipate one another and we know one another from a look or I know what you're thinking before you even say it. I mean, yes, some relationships are close like that. But even when that's true, it is still our responsibility to be known. Now, what can we do to increase our self-knowledge? Here are some tools. I think one of the most effective ones is journaling. Take a moment, write down what you feel, what you think, what happened in your day, what you liked, what you didn't like, where you want your life to go. I mean, I could spend hours talking about how to journal. But journaling is a great tool of self-knowledge. Therapy is a good tool of self-knowledge if you have a good therapist who can reflect you back to you. Solitude is essential for self-knowledge. We are constantly inundated with people. Now, I live in a city. For those of you listening who live outside of cities and in the country, which is my dream, I will get there. (laughs) You're not inundated with people, but you may be inundated with media or voices or news or podcasts (laughs) or social media. Okay, we're inundated with people, with voices, with influences. In order to hear ourselves and know ourselves, we got to turn all that off and go into solitude. And then another way to know yourself is through creative expression, whether that's art, songwriting, poetry, just random writing, just writing down anything that comes to mind, and honest and loving friends help. Now, I'm going to say a word about that. You have to have both if you're going to trust input from your friends, because if they're honest, and that means they want what's best for you, and they don't tell you what your ego wants to hear, they actually tell you the truth, okay, they have to also be loving. Now, when I moved to Nashville, I was going through a divorce. And I remember going out with a group of girls downtown, and I had just gotten to town, and they were showing me Lower Broadway. If you've been to Nashville, you know what Lower Broadway is. It's just a big, happy zoo, really, is what it is. And I was, you know, talking about the divorce and, you know, the failure of a marriage. And, you know, we were kind of laughing about it, too. But this girl looked at me, and she said, you know, Vanessa, I'm going to tell you right now. She goes, the best way to get over a man is to get under another one. And I just remember looking at her and thinking, my God, that is terrible advice. I didn't say it, but I thought it. I was like, that's terrible advice. That is not at all what I need right now. But it was meant as a joke, but kind of not really. I mean, that is a strategy for moving on is I'm just going to go find somebody else, right? But that wasn't great advice. So we need honest friends who will give us good advice because there's so much bad advice passed around. And usually bad advice is meant to keep you comfortable, not help you grow. Okay. But we also need them to be loving. So delivering hard truths, but with gentleness, right? With kindness. And even if it's delivered poorly, we should still take it because it'll help us grow. But 
if we're looking for self-knowledge and we want to keep growing, we do need honest friends who will tell us the truth, but in a loving way. Okay. Uncomfortable truth, unavoidable truth, number four. You are fashioning your own life. Okay? You are fashioning the life that you're living. So you have to be real clear about what's in your control and what's not in your control. Very often when I work with people who come to therapy and they're in high stages of anxiety, if it pans out, if it seems appropriate in a session, I might have them make two lists. And one list is what's in your control. And the second list is what's out of your control. And circle everything that's causing you anxiety. Most of the things that are causing you anxiety are probably out of your control. Okay, so the work of the anxious person is very often to let go of what's out of their control and really focus their energy and their internal resources on what's in their control. And sometimes those anxiety inducing situations can resolve. So what's in your control? Here we go. Your attitude, your work ethic, your effort toward health. Okay, the effort that you're putting forth in your life toward improving it, toward getting healthier, all of that's in your control and your level of self-awareness. Okay, which is going to directly impact your ability to change patterns and habits. And we have to challenge the victim mentality. So let's talk a little bit about this because it's really easy to develop a victim mentality as adults. We might be very empowered in certain areas of our lives and in other areas of our lives perceive ourselves as victims. So let's talk about this. Okay. Why do we need to challenge this mentality? Because adopting a victim mentality means we are by default Okay, the role of a victim, the mentality of a victim is we are by default adopting the limitations and the perceived oppressive structures that would serve to victimize us again and again and again. We are essentially agreeing that the oppressive nature of whatever we believe is oppressing us, if we're acting like victims, whatever we perceive that to be, it could be from our past, the present, we're saying it's out of our control. And when we're in a victim mindset, we're moving everything from the column of in my control, which is where we have healthy power, to the other side of out of my control. And we're left with little to no power whatsoever. And that's why we have to challenge a victim mentality. Because the longer we stay in it, the longer we believe we're not fashioning our own life. Powers that be, powers outside of us are fashioning our lives. And I know this is a hot topic, but from a mental health perspective, okay, that's my field. That's my expertise. From a mental health perspective, there is nothing healthy about a victim mentality. But what does it do for us? It's adaptive. It's maladaptive. What does it do for us? It keeps us safe from taking responsibility for our lives and all the choices that that entails. In order to grow, in order to fashion the life we want, we have to come out of that. Now, what does being victimized mean? What does it actually mean to be a victim? Because maybe we were victims. We were victims of abuse. We've been victims of injustice. We've been victims of many things in our lives. However, what separates a victim from just a bad day? Okay. Being a victim means you have no ability to stop what's happening. None. Okay. It means we're not choosing what's happening, but we have no power to stop it. We're literally overpowered. That's what makes a victim a victim. Now, when we have this mentality, and it's very easy to develop this mentality, I've done it in certain areas of my life, it's very easy to develop it if we were victimized, if we were abused, if we did suffer under powers we had no control over. But we grow into adults now who victimize ourselves. We may view circumstances that are in our control as out of our control. Maybe we abuse ourselves 
verbally, physically. We could abuse ourselves with alcohol, with drugs, with sex. We abuse ourselves and we create a victimized mindset as we were abused. We can become addicted to our own pain and we can only process the world through a lens of pain. All of this is a victim mentality. Self-abuse, a continuous lens of pain, and we need to flip the script. What does that mean? It means we ask this question. This is an important question to move us out of this. What is my personal dream? We need to get clear on that because if it's not clear, we're not going to accomplish it. You know, years ago, I had a colleague and really a mentor in the field who worked at an organization called Cooper Reese in North Carolina. And this is still one of my favorite places on the earth because of the special, special work that they do. They have a living program. So you don't go there if you have mental challenges, emotional distress, you don't go there and it's inpatient and you stay in like a psych, you know, a psych ward or a hospital. It's a completely beautiful organic farm in the hills of North Carolina. And the people that go there that are suffering with some kind of mental, emotional, psychiatric distress, they live there. They move there and everyone on the campus is trained in mental health. From the cooks to the janitors to the clinicians to the group leaders to the art directors, every single person there is trained to some extent in mental health. So it's a healing community. And the first question they ask when you get to Cooper Reese as a patient, as a patient of theirs, they will ask their prospective patients, what is your personal dream? It ignites hope again. They had a gentleman who they, I think it's on their website, who was suffering with psychosis. He was suffering with diagnosed schizophrenia. And he always wanted to be a psychiatrist. Friends, through his work at Cooper Reese, the love and the healing that he received from everyone in that community, he went to medical school and became a psychiatrist with schizophrenia. I mean, I'm not taking anything away from our own narratives, but it's sort of like, if you can, if he can do it, you know, what does that say about us? But we need to get clear on the dream. What is the dream for our lives? Write it down. When we stop dreaming, we lose hope. But when we have a dream for ourselves, our families, our marriages, our communities, we keep hope alive. and We keep moving toward that. So truth number four is you are fashioning your own life. We have to challenge the victim mentality. Unavoidable truth number five. Here we go. People, institutions, churches, parents, lovers, children, bosses, spouses, everybody, everybody in your life, at some point, they will all let you down. Wah, wah, wah. I know this is Debbie Downer time, but it's an unavoidable truth. And we don't want to face this. This is a really hard one. We want to put our trust in people and live in the security that that trust allows because we build our lives on promises. We build our lives on agreements that we've made with ourselves and other people that we will be safe, that people will be loyal to us, that there will be security, fidelity, honesty. These are the pillars of our lives. Truth is the foundation. And when these systems fail us, we can be devastated. But what if we knew it was coming? What if we'd been taught, hey, people, even good people are going to let you down. This would give us such a healthy foundation of trust and reality. And we'd live relaxed but alert, not just flying on autopilot, letting people take us for a ride, okay? We wouldn't be easily swindled. We'd trust. We would be able to trust, but we would trust when trust is earned, not when it's demanded. 
We would not allow ourselves to be lied to because we would know whoever this person is. If it doesn't ring true, I got to look into it because people are fallible. What do we do when people let us down? What do we do when entities let us down? We have to remember that everything I just listed, everything is human. And humans are flawed. Humans do the most profound damage when they're seeking their own interest and they've lost connection with empathy for other people. That combination is toxic for humanity. Self-interest combined with a lack of empathy. Now, maybe we address the wrongs. When people fail us, we address the wrongs. Maybe it's been an injustice, an insult, a broken promise, some kind of a breach of trust, right? And if and when we do, if that person or that entity is interested in growth, they will take us seriously and we all grow. And if we address it and there is no interest in growth, we have very, very important information. And that information is this. Does this person or this entity deserve my trust ever again? This is the unavoidable truth. We cannot live in relationship of trust with everyone. We will be disappointed. People will lie to us. We will be let down. So we have to own what we want versus what we get. We have to own the distance between what we deserve and what we experience. Why? Because to do this is to validate our pain. And why do we have to validate our pain, Vanessa? Well, because you can't heal what you won't feel. So we have to be involved actively in the disappointments in our lives not fixate on them, but allow them because it's an unavoidable truth. It's going to happen. So we own it. We name it when we're let down. And then we work on healing. And this brings us back to unavoidable truth number one. Not all things can be completely healed, but we can make progress. All right, let's pause there. We're going to come back next week with unavoidable truths six through 10, and they will be more positive. But these ones this week, I know they're hard to hear, but you know, I'm a realist, and I think mental health, the cornerstone of mental health, is a commitment to personal accountability. And we have to be in the world in reality, accountable to ourselves to distinguish that which is true from that which is not. We've got a lot of markers to help us do that. A gut feeling, that's the gut part. The heart, does it feel safe? And the mind, does it make sense? All right. Next week, we'll do Truths 6 through 10. Desiderata. I read from that in the beginning of this episode. That word is Latin. It means things desired. And this is a poem about the things we really want. And I thought about it because it's kind of long, but I wanted to read it to you. I'm going to read the entire poem to you now because I think we should all hear these words. Here we go. Go placidly amid the noise and the haste and remember what peace there may be in silence. As far as possible, without surrender, be on good terms with all persons. Speak your truth quietly and clearly, and listen to others, even to the dull and the ignorant. They too have their story. Avoid loud and aggressive persons. They are vexations to the spirit. If you compare yourself with others, you may become vain or bitter, for there will always be greater and lesser persons than yourself. Enjoy your achievements as well as your plans. Keep interested in your own career, however humble. It is a real possession in the changing fortunes of time. Exercise caution in your business affairs, for the world is full of trickery. But let this not blind you to what virtue there is. Many persons strive for high ideals, and everywhere life is full of heroism. Be yourself. 
especially do not feign affection. Neither be cynical about love, for in the face of all aridity and disenchantment, it is as perennial as the grass. Take kindly the counsel of the years, gracefully surrendering the things of youth. Nurture strength of spirit to shield you in sudden misfortune. But do not distress yourself with dark imaginings. Many fears are born of fatigue and loneliness. Beyond a wholesome discipline, be gentle with yourself. You are a child of the universe, no less than the trees and the stars. You have a right to be here. And whether or not it is clear to you, no doubt the universe is unfolding as it should. Therefore, be at peace with God, whatever you conceive him to be. And whatever your labors and aspirations and the noisy confusion of life, keep peace in your soul. With all its sham, drudgery, and broken dreams, it is still a beautiful world. Be cheerful. Strive to be happy. Thank you so much for listening today. If you like what you hear, please keep sharing this podcast. Again, this is our 25th episode, and y'all have come a journey with me. Let's keep going. Hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to all of you who are leaving five-star reviews. Thanks for the written reviews. It's so good to hear from you. Please keep sharing emails with me. The email address is thepodcast at vanessalondino.com. Remember, your sole work is to discover who you truly are and learn to love that human being. We can't love in delusion or illusion. Love exists in a space of truth. So let's face it and learn to love each other and love ourselves in the real world. This podcast is recorded in Nashville, Tennessee, edited by Jared Bentley. I'm Vanessa Londino, and you just listened to the Vanessa Londino Podcast.